A son tries to find common ground with his dying father, in spite of the old man's history of telling tall tales. Listen as we discuss British actors doing American accents, the Danny DeVito Assance, and angel dogs from puppy heaven. Then we find out if 2003's Big Fish stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time. I'm James Brief, and they say, uh, is it better to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond? We'll decide later today, or maybe we won't, but we're going to talk about big fish with my buddy and pal, Alan Noah. How are you, Al? I am very well. Thank you, James. How you doing? Good to see you. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, this was a very interesting film I'd never seen before. I'm excited to talk about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But before we get into Big Fish, let's talk about the Marvels specifically and Marvel as a whole because the Marvels did really, really poorly at the box office and uh, it's kind of a bummer. I I wanted to see it and I still am planning to, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, It was the lowest box office for any MCU movie ever, like even going back to The Incredible Hulk, right? Right, uh, going back to The Incredible Hulk, and it suffered the uh, biggest drop, uh, first to second week, uh, greater than the previous uh, holder of Ant-Man and Quantumania. So there's been more and more cracks in uh, the Marvel formula, and you know people are talking about uh, superhero fatigue, and you know maybe it has a little to do with DC Universe kind of falling apart, and after the whole Thanos uh, storyline ends, the Infinity Stones, that they just not have anything else that good to talk about personally for me i think it's uh something very simple it's none of those things oh i think it's just simply most of the stuff they're putting out is just not that good you know um, i have not seen the marvels uh so I'm, i have no idea whether it's good or bad but um no one's giving it uh, thor ragnarok uh the, the avengers infinity war kind of reviews and you know, you're hearing that it's $200 million. Like, I, I didn't see uh, Secret Invasion, this uh, Disney Plus series, but I'm hearing that these episodes cost $30 million each. I mean, Game of Thrones, the last season episodes, I mean, I think were costing maybe that. And these were like five army battles that, that kind of, you understood, okay, $30 million bucks. This is what we were waiting for. It, it just kind of seems like, Maybe it's not so much superhero fatigue, but maybe the quote-unquote Marvel formula, they were just kind of following the same formula and just expecting us to eat it up again and again. Well, that's interesting. The The reviews for the Marvels, from what I've seen, are like a B, like a, a cinema score B average, which isn't awful. And also, the movie did so poorly, like right out of the gate. So, you know, usually if a movie's bad, then... That doesn't necessarily mean that it does poorly right at the jump. Like with Quantumania, people were still into seeing the movie right away, and then it had really bad word of mouth, and then it had that terrible drop-off to week two. I think there's also just other factors involved where there was the whole strike, or strikes, I should say, you know, so nobody could promote this movie leading up to it. Also, there's just less urgency with some of these movies. The first uh, Captain Marvel movie, that was in between Infinity War and Endgame. And so that was like a movie you had to see because it was a bridge in between these two other must-see movies. And now I, I think it's kind of the fatigue thing that you were talking about. It's just that... Not everything can be a must-see because there's just so much. Um, And, you know, in terms of quality, I don't know. I mean, I honestly think that Quantumania kind of got a bad rap. Was it amazing? No. 
Did it follow the, the formula? Yes. Was it dog shit? No, definitely not. It wasn't that bad. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which also came out earlier this year, I thought that was really fucking good. Yes, and uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is the number four film of the year right now. Uh, okay. So it, it's reflecting. Uh, people did like that one. Uh, but they're making a solution to it with this new series called Marvel Spotlight. It's not a series. It's a new, uh, I guess, uh, production or... Uh, it's a label. It, it's a label, yes. Yeah, for Echo. For, yeah, for meaning. I don't know if you know what it means. Yeah. It basically means that this is just an enclosed, like almost one of these quote-unquote bottle episodes. This is a bottle series, meaning it doesn't connect to anything else. You can watch it. You can not watch it. Maybe you watch it in a year. Um, something that turned me off from the Marvels, uh, I'll just say, is uh, I saw this promoted a couple times in a few weeks beforehand and it was people saying that the marvels is a sequel to five marvel projects and what are the five the five things is that it's a sequel to captain marvel from 2019 right uh 2019's avengers endgame 2021's wandavision 2022's ms marvel and 2023's secret invasion and I personally don't really remember Captain Marvel. Um, I really like the climax of that film, but it doesn't have much to do with the mythos, so I don't remember much of Screes or Scrolls or Scrolls. Uh, you know, WandaVision, um, which actually was one of my favorite projects in the last few years because it's so wildly different. And I didn't see uh, Ms. Marvel or Secret Invasion. I've heard from several people that are parents that saw Ms. Marvel, and they said it was cute or fun and they were entertained as they watched it with their kids nothing great but no one said it was bad i thought it was really good i watched that with my daughter and we both really liked it okay i mean you're a little more enthusiastic than what i've heard i mean i i feel like this actress she's very um she's very enthusiastic about the role and i saw uh dr shane's in the multiverse of madness i thought it was good and I saw it with people that had not seen WandaVision. And I also saw it with people that had seen WandaVision. And the two of us that had seen WandaVision liked it a lot more because the other people were like, who the hell is Scarlet Witch's kids? I, I don't get it. And why is she so crazy about them? And it's like, oh, well, you know, there's actually kind of hours and hours of this uh, that, that I've seen on WandaVision. And it makes perfect sense for me. So... I kind of felt bad for them because I was like, oh, you know, this movie isn't as good. So I felt like maybe Ms. Marvel or rather the Marvels won't be the same. I'll get to Ms. Marvel, but why watch the Marvels when I haven't seen Ms. Marvel yet? Or Secret Invasion. I guess I probably don't have to rewatch Captain Marvel. But that, that's that's my problem with it. I can't keep up with everything. So I worry, should I watch it at all? Right, right, right. And that is the fatigue. Um, just going back to the thing you said, uh, Iman Vellani, who plays Ms. Marvel, in the reviews I've read, which I've tried to avoid spoilers, but everything I've seen says that she is one of, if not the highlight of the Marvels. She is great. And I've also read something that Secret Invasion is not a must-watch before the Marvels. You really just kind of have to know that a couple things went down that I could tell you in a sentence or two I won't right now for fear of spoiling anything, but you don't need to watch that, that show. That show was dog shit. It was really painfully bad. It's all about Nick Fury. I love Nick Fury. How did they fuck that up? I don't know. But I would recommend Miss Marvel. I thought that was a very entertaining show. But that is the thing. When, when the MCU started, its key feature was that you had to watch all of these different things. And yeah, there's an Iron Man series and there's a Thor series and they're separate, but not really. No, they're all one thing. It's all connected. That was the, the tagline. And that was awesome when there were five movies. Now that there's been 33 movies and I think I read something, it was like 39 hours of TV shows. Yet now it just kind of feels like homework. And what was the feature has become a bug. And I also think some of the other films were a little bit overrated in that it's a little bit unfair to say the Marvels is the first crack because of, certainly not because of any of this bullshit about, oh, it's women-led. Again, look at uh, Captain Marvel and look at uh, Wonder Woman. Sure. But then again, Captain Marvel, I think, is was a little bit overrated in its uh, box office take. Uh, overrated is the wrong word, but I think overestimated because I think that people were wrongly kind of tricked or led to believe that the Marvels and Ant-Man and the 
Wasp were really important to the Avengers Endgame mythos. Because if you remember Avengers Infinity War, which everyone loved, that was one of my favorite endings uh, of a movie in years. I love when, you know, it doesn't go well so well for the good guys. Right. And, you know, an Empire Strikes Back kind of ending. And then the post credits scene, Nick Fury sends a beeper and who's going to save us? This mysterious symbol that everyone quickly finds on the internet is Captain Marvel. Right. And it has nothing to do with the film. And then Ant-Man and Quantumania, they tease there is something in the film and it literally is nothing in the film except for the second post credit scene. Oh, you mean Ant-Man and the Wasp, not yes, Quantumania. Correct, Ant-Man and the Wasp. I saw that film yeah, in the theater because I was at the time itching for anything. Uh, you know, what happened to all the ba- uh, all the good guys and uh, where are the bad guys? And I was like, all right. I mean, I was entertained for two hours, I guess, but I don't remember a single thing about this film except for that post credit scene. Yeah. And it kind of was important to Endgame that you saw that end credit scene because how did Ant-Man help? But yeah, that, that to me was a little bit the first crack. Right. It, it was kind of a bait and switch. You're not wrong about that. I, I do hope I can see uh, the Marvels in the theater soon. Uh, and I am part of the problem because I didn't race out to see it right away when it came out. Although that first weekend it came out was Nick's Marathon. So I was busy that weekend, but it's been a few weekends since then and I still haven't gotten to the movie theaters. I hope to do that soon. But let's talk about Big Fish. So this movie is a movie that I really wanted to talk about and I'll explain why in a minute. But for anyone who hasn't seen it, It's about Edward Bloom, who's a man who becomes ill, and his estranged son, Will, comes home in the hope of making peace. Will resents his father because Edward has a habit of telling highly exaggerated stories. Edward recounts his youth to Will and Will's pregnant wife, Josephine. There's a story where Edward meets a witch and learns how he will die. Then there's a time that Edward meets a giant named Carl and brings him to a circus. Edward visits a magical town called Spectre, wins over the love of his life, Sandra, and is sent into Korea during the war. Will remains skeptical of his father's stories and does some investigating of his own. He finds that Spectre is a real town and that Edward saved it after it went bankrupt. As Edward dies, Will finally learns the value of his father's stories. So this movie came out in December of 2003. I don't think it was a smash hit, but it wasn't a bomb, right? It did okay. Uh, It had a very large budget, and you could tell there were probably a decent amount of CGI in here, and there's just some wild sets in this film. And it's a period piece, you got a lot of costumes. Uh, I'd read a $70 million budget, and uh, it opened on December 10th, 2003. Really, that was only for the uh, the, uh, award nominations. It was nominated for a bunch of awards, but it opened January 9th, 2004, very wide. It opened at number two with $13 million. Number one was number one for its fourth week. Eventually, it won Best Picture. Uh, is it uh, The Lord of the Rings, colon, Return of the King? Correct. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Ultimately, it made $66 million domestically and $123 million worldwide. But, uh, you know, it was not a smash hit. And I always appreciate when studios will take a risk on non-IP like this. Because, I mean, apparently it's based on a novel. But for all intents and purposes, this is sold as a Tim Burton film, not as based on any novel you've ever heard of. It's pretty cool that films like that were made with a $70 million budget. Because I just don't think they're going to do that stuff anymore. Yeah, you're probably right about that. Um, And you said you hadn't seen this movie I remember seeing this movie in the theater when it came out, maybe not December 2003, although I was living in New York City, so I could have seen it in its limited release window. Maybe it was January 2004, but I remember it very vividly because of something else that happened in December 2003, and that is my grandmother died. And that was tough for me because I loved my grandma and we were very close. Then Courtney and I went to see this movie, which is about death, and it got me. I was very, very emotional watching the movie. I remember being very upset, even though the movie is about a father and son, and my relationship with my grandma was nothing like the relationship between the father and son that you see in Big Fish. But still, you know, the death was very raw, and so the movie really touched me and and hit me on an emotional level. And so when I saw that it was the anniversary, I was like, okay, I want to watch this movie again because I hadn't seen it since. 
I've told you this, James, when we've been having conversations, not on the podcast, but this year, my dad has gone through some health stuff. And I'll tell you that watching this movie now hit very, very differently. Again, my relationship with my dad is nothing like the relationship between uh, Edward and William Bloom that you see in this movie. But still, it's a father and son movie. And, you know, my dad's getting older. He's had these health issues. I think he's doing okay. He's been really doing a lot better lately. And I'm hopeful and optimistic that all the worst is behind him. And he's got many bright, amazing, wonderful years ahead of him. But it's still tough. It was tough watching this movie. And honestly, if I had remembered just how much that this movie is about father-son stuff and a dying father at that, I might not have picked it to talk about on the podcast. But I I was watching the movie. I was like, okay, I'm in this. Let's go for it. Let's talk about it. If it gets real, if it gets emotional, I'm okay with that. Um, I'll try to not make the episode too depressing and dark and sad and stuff. But I might veer in that direction because that's just kind of where my head's at right now but kind of taking a, a step back from all of that because you hadn't seen the movie before this was your first time watching it what was your kind of first impression of the movie knowing that it was uh directed by tim burton did that play a part in what your first impression was uh, it definitely played a role. It's probably why I didn't see the film when it first came out. I mean, this has no slight to to Tim Burton, but I probably saw a trailer for it, and I saw, I thought, it's a weird Tim Burton film. And, you know, 20 years later, I'm right. This is a weird Tim Burton film. Sure. And, um, you know, I just wasn't in the mood for that. I was, like, in the beginning of med school, super stressed about everything there. And I, this is not the kind of film I want to watch. I probably would have rather seen, like, A Lord of the Rings that weekend. Okay. Um, I really had no idea what the film was about at all. So I kind of went in, you know, completely blind. Okay. All right. And just on the Tim Burton thing, Steven Spielberg was going to direct this movie. He was in talks, and then I think he went on to do... Catch me if you can. I I think that that's what it was. Um, but, you know, it wasn't always destined to be a Tim Burton movie. Apparently, um, Tim Burton had a complicated relationship with his parents and he wasn't very close with them. And then his mom died and then his father died uh, very shortly after. And it, it hit him in a way that he wasn't really expecting. And then he was handed the script and he was like, OK, I, I think I can bring something to this movie. Pretty much every Tim Burton film, there is a problem with the father. Batman um, mourns the loss of his father. Edward Scissorhands, you have Christopher Lee, the father figure, dies uh, suddenly, and uh, you know he he doesn't know he has no one to guide him. Um, You have the Willy Wonka remake that he made was all about how his father, the Christopher Lee, uh, was this dentist who was so kind of rough on him and made candy so evil. Uh, You know he directed Dumbo, and that's going to be I guess more of the the mother. But yeah, I guess he didn't realize uh, he has a lot. Of a, uh, maybe father issues. Yeah. Issues. Well, I mean, directing Batman, I don't think necessarily puts you sure <laughs> with the father issues. To be fair, of course, of course. Um, but this movie does have a ton of voiceover in it, and I know that I've said this a million times that I don't really like voiceover most of the time. The voiceover didn't really bother me in this movie, mainly because this movie is effectively a fairy tale or maybe if you look at it slightly differently many fairy tales kind of stitched together but in that sort of storybook kind of way I think it works it works to have a narrator we're hearing the story of Edward's life and it's told by Edward as an old man it's told by Edward as a young man we hear some stories from his son, Will. We later hear some stories told by Jenny, who was a, you know, a young girl that Edward knew. So I like that they change up who's telling you the stories at different parts of the, of the movie. Really, my only complaint about the voiceover isn't really so much about the voiceover. It's more about, I just don't like Ewan McGregor's Alabama accent. It's pretty fucking bad. It's like a bad Matthew McConaughey impression. And I was reading 
that apparently he and Albert Finney, who plays the older Edward, they both work together with a dialect coach so that their accents would match. And Ewan McGregor said that the Alabama accent was easier than just a regular American accent. I was like, oh, it's pretty fucking bad. Have you watched Fargo, the TV show? No. Okay, well, he was in season three, and he plays uh, two characters from the Midwest, because he's playing twins in that. And his Midwestern accent didn't bother me, but his Alabama accent is pretty fucking atrocious. Um, I didn't even notice it much as an Alabama accent, to be honest. I was kind of trying to remember where they were from. I just thought it was that kind of bland foreigner doing a quote-unquote American accent. It did not sound like Forrest Gump in any way. It was not Alabama. Right. You know, it wasn't the long drawl, Georgia drawl. You know, it didn't have any of that. I know what you mean. There was something about the accent that was bothering me, but I thought it was just more of the, uh, you know, you could tell it's not an American. It's not up there with Andrew Lincoln doing the, where was he from on The Walking Dead? Was that Georgia? Yes, Georgia. Okay. And then I heard him. I'm like, oh my God, that guy's British. Right. Yeah, that was like the perfect example of a British person doing a Southern dialect and nailing it. I love Ewan McGregor, don't get me wrong, but he does not nail it. Idris Elba was another uh, guy that I had no idea was uh, British until I heard his real voice. And and, uh, Colin Farrell, I had no idea was that Irish. Oh my God. Have you, you've heard him like talk on a talk show? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know what else is so Tim Burton about this movie? The Danny Elfman score. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting you say that Steven Spielberg would have done this. Because I feel like John Williams would have done a really interesting but very different soundtrack to this film. Yeah. And it would have worked with uh, uh, Spielberg. And I could see a lot of these characters. You know, He wouldn't have exactly picked Danny DeVito. He would have picked some other sort of lovable kind of character. Um, it's interesting that you know the, it's uh, these Tim Burton, uh, these Tim Burton actors, Helena Bonham Carter, she's in it, and uh, Danny DeVito, who, of course, uh, we saw him in uh, Batman Returns. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, he's someone who obviously works with a lot of people. Johnny Depp he's works with uh, many times. Yeah, and Johnny Depp was going to be involved, or uh, at least Tim Burton was mentioning his name because he does that a lot. But uh, Johnny Depp was busy on Pirates of the Caribbean, colon, Curse of the Black Pearl, I believe, at this time. And honestly, it's nothing to do with the Amber Heard stuff. I was kind of over Johnny Depp like a long time ago uh, and just his his shtick. So you never know. It's hard to imagine. I think I would have enjoyed this movie significantly less if it starred Johnny Depp. Um, I don't know if starring Johnny Depp would have been the move, but I think he could have made an interesting giant. Uh, Carl. Okay. That could have been interesting, but I feel like Carl was perfectly used and he wasn't a scene stealer. Whereas Johnny Depp would have been like, what amazing Johnny Depp crazy thing is he going to do as Carl? Whereas Carl, his purpose was was very clear. And I, I like that the actor did his thing and it wasn't like the focus wasn't on the actor. It was on the character, Carl. Right. So I just kind of want to pick your brain Because you went into this movie cold, not knowing a lot about it. As you are watching the movie and you're getting these tall tales, pun slightly intended with Carl, I guess. What were you thinking as you were watching the movie in terms of the reality of this movie? Um, well, I mean, whenever you watch a movie, you have to find out, is this set in our universe or not? Like, do the rules apply? Is this going to be something where, yeah, there can be supernatural things? Is this Edward Scissorhands, for example? And I quickly did realize that this is not that kind of film. I quickly had to come to terms with uh, a scene that comes very early on in the film, The Witch. Yeah. And it's a fascinating scene, Edward as a young boy, me this old haggard lady with one eye or she has a glass eye lifts up the eye patch and whenever you look in her eye you could see your death and it's a fascinating scene because uh, there's three boys there uh, Edward's two friends one boy sees himself die as an old man one guy sees himself die as like, like a 30 year old and the other one Edward we don't see exactly uh, what he sees but he just goes oh interesting and his reasoning for wanting to find out how he dies is actually quite brilliant because he says if i find out how i die 
I know I survive everything else. Yeah. And that does come in handy later where supposedly he's being uh, trapped by these, you know, sort of like a tree monster. And he goes, no, wait, this isn't how I die. So I know I escape from it. Right. Sort of kind of Bill and Ted logic. Yes. Where it's like, we'll later go back and fix it. And, you know, anything that happens in real life, as long as it's not what he saw, he's good with. And as we can now tell, if there's any, you know, quote unquote truth to this, he saw himself die in his sleep as an old man with his son at his side. So so to answer your question in the beginning, um, I quickly was figuring, I don't think this is real. I don't think this is really a witch. Although then uh, the, one of the guys does die exactly like the witch said, which made me go, well, there's one of two possibilities here. Either he really saw that and this really is a real witch, or this guy dies the way he died, and now it's kind of retconned when he tells the story. Oh, yeah, he saw him go that way. I think what you're supposed to think is that Edward is just changing the story to suit what happens. Because he is an unreliable narrator. His stories are based on reality. There's a line that I wrote down because, you know, I kind of remembered some things about this movie from the first time I saw it. It's a line from uh, Billy Crudup, who, by the way, I think is great in this movie, and I do really like him as an actor. Um, But he says, it doesn't always make sense, and most of it never happened. And he's kind of talking about everything in Edward's life and kind of everything in the movie. And that line is foreshadowing and... When you first watch the movie the first time, maybe it doesn't really kind of leap out at you. But on second viewing, I'm like, aha, okay. He's telling you at the beginning that a lot of this shit is made up, which is nice. That is a clear signpost so that you are being warned. And if that line goes past you and you don't notice it, fine, fair enough. But I just appreciated that on second viewing that it was there. You said it at the end, on second viewing, because the question you asked me was more, what did I think? And I didn't realize till a little bit into this that this is an unreliable narrator. And then I started to get it. Also, once we meet Carl, he is an unnaturally tall giant. Uh, He's like... Ten and a half feet tall. So again, is this you know is this the real world or not? And I kind of was starting to think that uh, maybe this is just Tim Burton esque and it's exaggerated here. And it's this perfect little quote unquote freak show, you know, traveling south. And what perfect casting to have Danny DeVito as a ringmaster. When I saw him come out, I was like, oh, wow, this is... Because you heard his voice first. And I was like, is that him? Oh, fantastic. And it's also before what I would call the Danny devito essence, which is, you know, he's always been around. Everyone kind of liked him. But I think he's way more popular in the last 15 years than he ever was because of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And I think he's almost peaking right now. now he was doing regular films out the 80s 90s you know, tv and everything he was never not working he had a great role and just again so perfectly cast right and then he would go and play a ringmaster for tim burton again in the dumbo live action movie oh perfect um but his character in this movie is a werewolf which is clearly fake like he is not really a werewolf that kind of stuck out to me as a a tall tale that really doesn't pay off it doesn't really go anywhere there's really not much to that other than the other guy at the circus takes out uh, a gun with a silver bullet and is ready to shoot him when he's in werewolf form and then edward's like no no don't shoot him I'll go talk to him. And then, you know, he just kind of pets the the werewolf and throws a bone and then everything's fine. So it just is kind of a, a story about compassion, I guess, but it doesn't really pay off. And the whole thing with the conjoined twins, I did also kind of feel like that story didn't really go anywhere. It's more just about he was gone away from his wife for a long time and and he met those characters. Yes, but I think they had the most important part at the the last big scene of the film. The father dies after one last tale that the son tells him, like this fantastical tale about how, oh, we're going to escape from the hospital and I'll bring you to the woods and all your friends and characters from your whole life, every single one of them is there and they're here to see you off and then you turn into a big fish and then swim away. Right. And... Then uh, the father dies, and at the funeral, this is the big payoff of the film, 
all the characters, they're basically real, except they're slightly less exaggerated versions of him. Right. Carl really is an incredibly tall guy, but he's like a seven foot two guy. Seven and six, actually, in real life. Exactly. Like he's he's enormously tall, but not. You know, this is someone that you would see on planet Earth. Right. Um, in the in the flashbacks, he's like maybe. 15 feet tall or bigger. Exactly, yeah. Like the CGI there. Uh, everyone else comes back that, that you see that were real, except the conjoined twins. They are clearly twins that are separate people. Right. And it's a very clear shot because you see one of the twins, and I couldn't tell whether the shot was kind of angled and I couldn't see the uh, other half of the, you know, the other head. And I was like, where is it? Come on, swing around. And then they clearly clearly show that the other sister is an entirely different crowd. Yes. And that, I think, is the entire point of her character. Yeah. Uh, unless they cut out another part. Because Edward says, help me escape and I'll bring you to the like most famous producer in America, bigger than Bob Hope. Right. And then it just jump cuts to him back in America. We don't see the twins and they show up at the funeral. Smash cut. Um, but yes, I, I know what you mean. And yeah, I think you're you're right. That is the point of those characters. And yeah, it's just to kind of tie it all together at the end. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about the town of Spectre because there is just something so idyllic and Rockwellian about this town that he first goes to visit and it's magical because the mayor's like, oh, we weren't expecting you yet. You're early. And he's like, well, what do you mean you were expecting me? Because he just kind of finds this town. He stumbles upon it literally by, you know, taking the wrong way on the path out of this other town. And then he goes back later and it's bankrupt because they let roads into this town and then commerce came in and business came in and it corrupted the town and it all went to shit. And there is some statement in this movie about capitalism because in, in, in uh specter, he meets Steve Buscemi's character, who's this poet. And then he bumps into him later and they rob a bank together. But then the joke is that there's no money in the vault because of uh, deregulation and subsidies and blah, 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 blah. So of course there's no money in the vault. And then he becomes like a Wall Street guy. And so then he has lots of money. The movie's saying something about money and economics. And I'm not sure exactly what, because I think it gets a little muddied. But once the town is bankrupt, then... Edward decides to save it by buying it. And it's wonderful that he saves his town and it's like this beautiful altruistic thing. I don't really get why he needs to buy the town. You know, like, couldn't he just give them money and, you know, repair the old buildings? There, there was something in there about buying it that just didn't really make sense to me. Did you get that? I mean, I guess if you buy it, then you just rebuild everything as opposed to like telling everyone, hey, I'm going to rebuild and repaint your houses. I think it might just be easier if he just buys everything. You're right. Okay. It could have been gone either way. That's fair. But but the character of Jenny, who is the little girl that he meets when he first comes to Spectre and she's this adorable, precocious little kid and she's talking about how, oh, you're only 10 years older than me and that's a big deal now, but it won't be such a big deal later. She has a crush on him and I did kind of forget if Edward does have an affair, but Will's like, you must have been having an affair with my dad, right? And she tells a story of, no, I tried. I tried to sleep with your dad, but he wasn't interested. And, you know, that's nice because he's a noble character. But then it's revealed that she's the witch, which makes sense because she, unlike a lot of the other characters in the movie where there's different actors playing the old version and the young version, Helena Bonham Carter plays the witch and she plays Jenny, although I guess there is another actress when she's a little girl. Is that Alison Lohman? Uh, Alison Lohman plays um, the wife, Sandra. And, oh, okay. Yeah, Alison Lohman plays uh, Sandra as a young woman, and then Jessica Lang plays old Sandra. I don't know the name of the, the girl who plays um, Jenny as a little girl, but the whole thing about Jenny being the witch it doesn't make sense. And Will says that to her. He's like, but no, sorry, you can't be the witch because the witch is an old lady when my dad was a young man. And now this is later and you're, you know, middle-aged. And I think Jenny says, yeah, I know it doesn't make any sense, but in Edward's stories, it makes perfect sense. And 
I'm just curious what, what you thought on watching that. Did that piss you off? Did that work for you? I mean, it's something we were talking about before. I was still left hanging of like, so what the fuck happened to this guy? Can we confirm that he's either lying or not lying? And the end, they, they tell you it, it's mostly lying, but not, or, or rather it's halfway lying. There's some of this stuff happened, but not the way he said it did. But the way he says it did is kind of a better way of saying it. Okay. All right. And because you use that word, I'm curious. Would you call Edward a liar? Of course they're lies. Like, you know, but I mean, if you literally tell someone a story and, you know, you change a slight detail of it, are you lying? Like sometimes if I'm international, I will tell people I'm from New York. Like, you know, I'm not originally from New York City, right. but like, you know, for someone in Brazil, sure. You know, cause if they say I'm from Paris, well, I'm like five minutes outside the Paris city line. So no one in Paris would call it Paris, but you could say Paris, but yes, you're a liar if you say you're from Paris. So he is, he's definitely a liar. I don't think he believes these things. Just like uh, at the end, uh, Billy Crubb's character is quite quote-unquote, lying when he says what is going to happen to his father about how they're uh, escaping. It's it's a tale. I mean, fiction is lying, I guess. I, you know, is it? That's a, that's a philosophical question. Is fiction lying? Right. And, and that's kind of what I was getting at. And I know I can be annoying when I split hairs about definitions and semantics and shit. It's worth at least thinking about. I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. But yeah, if you're telling a story and you write fiction and you say, here is my fiction story, it's all made up. Am I lying or is it stories? This is different. What, what Edward is doing in this movie is different because he says, this is the story of the day my son was born. And that's not what really happened. So I think it's fair to say that it's a lie. You know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, when an author like Susan Collins uh, writes The Hunger Games, that's fiction. She's not lying about what Katniss Everdeen did because it's a fictional character. She made it up. However, I don't remember what that guy's name was. Remember the guy that was on Oprah like 10, 15 years ago? A million pieces or something. A million little pieces? Something like that. I mean, this guy wrote a book and said, this is the true story of my, I don't know, drug addiction or something. And then it turned out it wasn't. That's what pissed people off. Right. Whereas uh, you can also write like fictionalized novels or Ramona Clef or, you know, sure. one of those kind of things. And then it's fine. So I do think the father is kind of a liar, but it's I think in the end, Will figures out why he says it. And yeah, the story just works out nicer if it's kind of like the destiny of how I met your mother. And, you know, it's, it's like a, my sister, Joanna, there's rumors that uh, she got her dog, Nyack through an adoption, a legal adoption. But if you ask my sister, and when next time she comes on, you can ask her, how did she get Nyack? She will tell you with a straight face that um, Nyack floated down from poppy heaven on a cloud straight into her arms. She will say this with a straight face. Okay. And she insists this is true. And, you know, I think we're both joking about it. Of course we are, probably. But it doesn't matter because it's fun. And the point of it is that this dog was was an angel puppy from puppy heaven. And metaphorically, that's the only place where this dog could have come from. So, you know, okay. it's one of those things we all believe, like telling a kid about the tooth fairy we're kind of lying to them but uh it's a little bit more fun than saying oh well you know the uh root of your tooth decayed and uh you know it's being pushed out for the other tooth right and then i'm going to sneak into your room while you're sleeping and put uh, a couple dollars under your pillow like there is value to that i mean as a father i told my kids about the tooth fairy and the easter bunny and santa claus and all parents do there are lies that you tell your kids because the lie is better than the truth. You know, in this movie, you just have so many lies. And then as this man is dying and his son is saying, please, I just want to get to know you, the real you. Please tell me the truth. And the dad's like obstinate and stubborn and saying, no, I've told you everything. The truth is the truth. I've told you what I wanted you to know. And so then it kind of becomes this other thing. And that's why he's frustrated. And Honestly, I think Will is justified in being angry at his dad because he's just 
a bullshit artist and he's he lies and he tells these tall tales and he's kind of an attention hog and that's the thing you see at the beginning of the movie when uh, he's telling the story about the day my son was born it's at Will's wedding and it's Will and Josephine's special day and his dad is stealing the spotlight and you can understand why a son would resent his father for that but I do like the the conclusion at the end where he gets it what's more important is the story and I don't know that that's always true universally, but I think within this context, with this family, it works. And it it's maybe a sappy ending, but I feel like because the movie is a fairy tale, it kind of works for me anyway. It just kind of feels like the logical conclusion. Yeah, and, you know, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the way rabbis talk. And if you ask a rabbi a question, you know, a philosophical ethics question or something, there's always a story. Oh, well, have you ever heard the story of Mordecai from Prussia? Well, he had two goats. And there's always an allegory. And did these stories exist? I don't know. Does it matter? You know, right. maybe it did or did not. And, you know, even looking at some stuff like like the Bible, does it matter if you uh, look at the Garden of Eden? Does this prove the earth is 6,000 years old? Or is this a story of if humanity was given paradise and no pain, you just have one thing. You get the entire planet except that one tree. You get a billion trees, but not that one. Humans will, the very first thing they do, take that tree and then kill each other. Right. We understand this is a fake story. It doesn't matter that it's fake. We like the lesson that it's giving us. And I think that's basically what this is all about. And the fact that Will, in the end, will lie and say his story and realize what a wonderful thing this does for his father. He literally dies in peace because of this story. Yeah. And he could not have done it any other way. There's nothing the doctors could have done there to help. Only that story could have done it. And he does it. And, you know, it's it's perfect full circle. Yes, yes. And there's a moment before that when uh, the doctor is telling Will about the real story of the day he was born. And the real story is really fucking boring. And he's like, you know, I kind of like your dad's version better because it's really sweet. And it's about, you know, how, how he caught the fish and he gave the fish the wedding ring. And that's how you land an amazing woman is with a ring. And it's a nice story. It's better than the real story. And sometimes that works. As a father, I've told my kids stories about the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus and all that shit. I mean, I don't lie about real life things about the day that they were born and my past and and things like that because I don't think there's value in it but with this character and the way he sort of spins his yarns when you look at it as a fairy tale I feel like then it sort of gets a pass and and also it is relatable I mean everyone knows somebody like that who just no matter what you're talking about Oh, they've got a story for you about that. And, you know, some people are better at it than others, but the people who are good at it, yeah, you just want to listen. Who gives a shit if it's real or not? Yeah, so uh, let me ask you, Al, do you think 2003's uh, Big Fish stands the test of time? I do. I think it really works as a fairy tale, as a story about stories, which, you know, can be a little bit weird and can be hit or miss. But I think this movie really works. You know, like I was saying in the beginning, how I had one reaction to it 20 years ago because my grandmother had died and I'm watching it now 20 years later when my dad's had these health issues and it hits different. But also it kind of hits the same Because a story that's about death and connecting with someone who's dying and connecting with someone who you loved and then you've become estranged, that's always going to be relevant. That's always going to stand the test of time because that's something that will always be relatable. There will always be someone who you love, who passed away, who you wish you had talked to them and you wish that you'd connected with them in a different way. And then there are people who died and you felt like, oh, well, we had this special relationship. And there's always going to be something in here that I think will connect with people, with with audiences, no matter what, no matter what's going on in your life. I think there will be something that you can connect with. 
the one thing that did kind of strike me from a test of time perspective is the way that the father is, the way that Edward is as a dad. He's not very grounded in reality, but he also is so stubborn and he won't talk to his son and tell his son the truth. It kind of made me think if that's just the way dads used to be. You know, I've heard stories from my dad when he's talked about his dad and he said that his dad never really gave him hugs and said that he loved him and you couldn't really connect with that guy. And that was just that generation. And, you know, there were plenty of opportunities in this movie where Edward could have said, hey, you know what, son, sorry about stealing uh, your thunder at your wedding. That was the wrong thing to do. And just kind of admitting that he was wrong and maybe just kind of coming clean. And he doesn't do that. Is that just because that's his character or is it a little bit also because that was that generation? I don't really know. I mean, I only know from my experience, from my father's experience, from stories I've heard. I think back about that TV show that I've never seen an episode of in my life called Father Knows Best. I I wonder if that was just a silly name for a sitcom or if that really is kind of the way people viewed fathers. They were aloof, they did their own thing, and then they would maybe come and swoop in and give you some advice, and that was it. And you better fucking listen to it because that's your goddamn father. You know what also just popped into my mind? A Christmas story. Wait till your father gets home. You know, like that kind of imposing figure. What do we think about dads now? We think of dad jokes. Everyone knows what a dad joke is. Dads are corny and goofy, and certainly I can relate to that. That's the kind of dad I am, and maybe that's just me, and I'm not representative of all dads everywhere, I'm sure, but I do just feel like the perspective of dads and what a dad means, sort of like in a big picture cultural sense, I do think that has changed a bit. Maybe the jokes, but I'll say that as a pediatrician, not everyone is like Phil Dumphy from Modern Family. Sure. Not everyone is like that. So Of course. And I would not say the vast majority of them are happy-go-lucky, like guys that want to be human jungle gyms for their kids. That is totally, totally fair. I get that. And I'm painting with very, very, very broad brushes here. And I realize that. And I realize that there were dads back in the 1950s who picked up their kids and hugged them all the time and told them that they loved them every single day. Because of course there were. I'm just kind of speaking more generally about fathers and sons, but this movie still works. Uh, It's a fairy tale. And yes, I do think that it stands the test of time. But what do you think, James? You know, as a period piece, uh, there's not there's nothing in the film that, uh, you know, is going to kind of sound outdated. I was having a little trouble kind of dating when this film took place because I was thinking, is this modern times with Will or because if it's modern times, this traveling circus stuff, wasn't this like in like the 30s and or were these still around in like the 60s and stuff? I don't know. Um, I think, though, that the flashbacks take place in the 50s, 60s, I think. Right, right. So that that's why I was kind of trying to wonder because it kind of seemed a little older to me. But I, I could be wrong. You know, some of these uh, quote-unquote freak shows, I tend to think that these are like Depression-era vaudeville kind of things. Okay. But they, they, they still might have been around then. But that is a good point because if it's taking place in the present in 2003, then that wouldn't really work timing-wise. So maybe the present of the movie is actually like, I don't know, 1990 or something i'd have to do the math yeah i mean mean, it's kind of the simpsons kind of in joke where you know it is the modern day but homer and marge were teenagers right now homer and marge would be teenagers in like 2010 right they they would be going to justin bieber concerts in their high school but um it's a very nice story you do have to pay attention to this film i did get interrupted with a phone call and i tried to watch the film while i was on a quick call i couldn't understand a couple things i was like wait wait, wait, what just happened here how did they get here wait there's a woman swimming underwater there's a car here this is not a film that you can blink you have to pay attention but if you do, the payoff is very nice. Um, 
I may not watch this film again, almost because of what you were saying. It's a sad film. Yeah. Look, there's there's a reason I haven't watched this movie in 20 years. Exactly. So um, for me, yes, uh, this film does stand the test of time. It, it's a lovely film. It's not one of those like, oh, I'm so sad I haven't watched it. But I am happy I did watch it. And Good. it's one of those films that you should see. That, that is uh, yeah, probably the hardest thing for humans to talk about. Yep. And it's done in a good way. It, it's a very lovely story and it does stand the test of time. I don't think you're wrong when you say that it's a sad movie, because it is, and I I have watched this movie twice, and it has made me cry twice, but I do think it is also bittersweet, and I think it's uplifting in its own way, where at the end, Will is telling the stories of his grandfather to his son, and there's a quick line where Edward and Will are talking, Will is trying to get his dad to be honest, and he says, I'm about to become a father, and it would kill me if my son didn't understand me. And Edward says, oh, it would kill you, would it? Implying that that's what's killing him, is that his own son doesn't understand him. And, like, it's tough, and it's harsh, but then he does understand him at the end. So they do have that connection, and even though it is sad, and it definitely made me sad, I was like, okay, it's still just uplifting enough. You know, it's a love story. It's comedy. It's got Danny DeVito. It's got a giant and witches, but fun witches. And yeah, it, it's mostly fun. Right, right, right. Well, I'm glad you watched this movie. I'm glad that you enjoyed it on some level, even if, uh, you know, it's not the happy-go-luckiest movie ever. So that is going to do it for us this week. Next week, we are going to be talking about Scarface, the 1983 version, not the original from the 30s, I believe. Uh, I've never seen that one, and I kind of have a little bit of curiosity, but not enough to actually watch it. The uh, Al Pacino movie is turning 40, and... That's the perfect opportunity to rewatch and revisit Scarface. I'm going to go ahead and assume that you've seen that one. I have. I haven't seen it as many times as, you know, one would think, but I've seen it before. Yeah, I think I've only seen it once, maybe twice, to be honest, which I, I feel like I should be embarrassed to admit. But I'm going to watch it again for next week's episode. And listeners, you can do that too if you like, and uh, you'll be all ready to listen to us talk about Scarface. In the meantime, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Testing Time Pod on Facebook, X, Instagram, and Threads. You can send us an email, the Testing Time Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.